or in the fireplace, and, we, and, it's, and it's pretty to look at, and you can see different colors in it. You know, you shut the glass doors on the fireplace, it radiates heat. Oh, it's nice, right? You can, you can curl up in front of it, take yourself a good nap. It's great. It's enjoyable. It's a blessing to your house, right? And sex within marriage is meant to function like a fire in the fireplace, to give your marriage heat and beauty and blessing. Now, if you take that same fire and you relocate it to, say, the kitchen floor, well, you've got a 911 call on your hand pretty fast, right? Because there's one context where it's safe and beautiful and blessed, and another context in which it's destructive and disastrous. And I think in the church, a lot of times we emphasize so much the idea of the context in which it's destructive and disastrous that we forget about the context in which it is beautiful and blessed and gives warmth to your relationship. And so I want to focus on that just to start with. Um, Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why is that? Well, because their union was fully holy before God, because it was ordained by God. It was part of the very good creation of God that God has described in in general terms in chapter 1, and more specifically focusing on the man and the woman in chapter 2. And there's an important sense in which being together as husband and wife in the marriage bed takes you back in a certain way to how God intended things to be in the garden. That you're as vulnerable as you can possibly be, and yet completely accepted and loved at the same time, naked and unashamed. And sex is part of God's good creation. Contrary to what some people have taught, it's never a dirty or shameful thing within the context of marriage. A lot of times people were taught that, you know. Um... But here's, here's the biblical truth on this. You are just as holy making love with your spouse as you are praying or doing Bible study with him or her. Now that may take a while to sink in, but that's true. According to your Bible, you're just as holy at the moment of ecstasy with your spouse as you are reading your Bible, or praying with them. It's not just good. It's not, and on top of that, it's not just something it's, that's good that God created. It's also something God blesses. So I want to show you a little bit of Song of Solomon. Uh, if you don't think God thinks this is important to address, he wrote a whole book on it. Uh, Song of Solomon. I want to show you part of chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, and the first verse in chapter 5. Okay. There we read, uh, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh with my spice, I ate my honeycomb with my honey, I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Now, the first part of this, verse uh, 16, uh, 
is the is there's a conversation that's going on in their bedroom. This is their wedding night. They're at the Sheraton right now as we're reading. Okay. And this is their wedding night. And in the previous chapters, what you've been reading is how she, how she and he are both describing their desire for each other. But then they say, you see this repeated verse, uh, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the does and the gazelles of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it pleases, until the appropriate time. In other words, I've got desire for my husband. He's not my husband yet, so we need to keep that quiet. We need to keep that asleep. Go to sleep. Go to sleep. Go to sleep, right? And then you read 4.16, Awaken. And he has been in the process, in the context of this, the immediate previous verses of chapter 4, he is in the process of undressing her. And she says, awaken. In other words, wake up. The party's on. All right? And, and she is inviting him to come and be with her. And then immediately after their encounter, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 See if you can spot the repeated word. Came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. What's the repeated word? My. Because they are now together. They are now husband and wife. And so it's my, 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 my. Okay? You are mine. You belong to me. We are husband and wife. Now, the ESV, I don't like the way it labels this, because I, I think I, I, this is not there in the original, but the ESV labels that others. Okay? But there's a third voice that you read. And I don't think it's, you know, their friends outside the window or something. I think it's God who is present in their bedroom with them on their wedding night. And notice what he says. He says, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. In other words, God is watching all this whole scene unfold, and he is encouraging this. He is smiling down on them and encouraging them to enjoy all this to the fullest extent. Now, a lot of us, I think we have kind of a crabbed view of God, where we think that if anything is fun or enjoyable uh, or a really good time, and especially in this area of our life, we think God is kind of up there kind of going, well, they're at it again, Okay. That is not his attitude. I didn't know they were going to do that. You know, I mean, we, that is not his attitude at all. His attitude is this is a blessed thing. Enjoy it. I created it for you within the context of your marriage to be a blessing. And he pronounces his blessing on them in what they're doing. Uh, God is not averse to our pleasure and enjoyment of each other. In fact, one of, the, one of the big reasons, if you read your Bible, that he creates the gift of sex is precisely to inject enjoyment and pleasure into your marriage. You know, I'm not a mechanic, nor the son of a mechanic, 
to me, an engine is a black box, okay? It really is. I, I, you know, those cat guys that can figure out just based on the sound how that thing is functioning, I'm just, I'm in awe of that, you know? You know, I read theology and, and write sermons for a living. I'm a useless mystic, basically, right? <laughs> but, but, but one of the things that I do know about an engine is this, is that if you put oil in it, it works better, <laughs> right? And if you don't have oil in it, it doesn't work as well. And in a sense... I think God designed sex to function like oil in your engine. That it helps everything just flow a whole lot more smoothly and, and, to, and to create a lot less friction than there otherwise would be. It's a blessing. Uh, sex is also, according to Jesus, an act of marital unification. So if you've got your Bible, again, flip over to Mark chapter 9, or chapter 10, rather, I'm sorry. Chapter 10, verses 7 through 9. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. Jesus is answering in context a question about divorce. You know, and the Pharisees are asking, what are the circumstances in which I can divorce my wife? And Jesus, in very typical fashion, says, you're asking the wrong question. You need to, you need to first understand what marriage is and what marriage is for. And then you understand uh, that, there, that divorce was never part of the design in the original blueprint. And he says, in the original blueprint, God brings a man and a woman together, and when they come together, they become one. They become one flesh. And it's an interesting word, by the way. I studied this. The same word for oneness that God uses between husband and wife is the same word he uses in Deuteronomy to talk about the oneness of God within the Trinity. Now that'll blow your mind right there, okay? We are created in the image of God. And as human beings, we have distinct persons. But when a man and a woman come together as husband and wife, they're as close to being in the image of God and how God actually exists within the Trinity as they ever are in their entire life. They have a oneness, like God's oneness. And that oneness is not, is not designed to ever come apart. And in fact, in fact, Jesus says right here that it's God who joins them together as one flesh. So that just as in Song of Solomon on their wedding night when the husband and wife are together, it's God who is there blessing them and uniting them and encouraging them in what they're doing. It's God who knits husband and wife together. And so, th so he says, therefore, when you, once you are united, God has bonded you together. And you're not to tear that apart. It's meant to be a permanent bond.
like glue. When you stick two pieces of wood together and then you clamp that off, you can get that apart, but not without breaking it. It's meant to be permanent. Designed to be a permanent bond. It's also an act of joyful self-disclosure. Now I want to flip you back to Genesis again. A lot of flipping today. I apologize for that. Uh, I normally like to stay in just one place, but today we've got to do some flipping. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and she bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now when I was in high school, we used to read these descriptions in Genesis and other places where it talks about, and so-and-so knew his wife and she had a baby, Right? And we go, what is the deal with that, you know? Then we'd make wisecracks about knowing, you know, people knowing each other or getting to know each other in the biblical sense, right? And we would laugh and so forth. But there's a very special word that's used there in Hebrew. It's the word yada. And it has the idea of knowing someone at a deep level and having an understanding of them that is intimate that is not possible in certain contexts. And, and I think the Hebrew writers are, telling, are using that word not because they're embarrassed and they just didn't, didn't want to write, you know, and, and Adam had sex with Eve and they had a child, but because they're trying to teach us something about what is happening when a man and woman come together. And what they're trying to teach us is happening is that there is a level of knowing and of self-disclosure that takes place that is possible in no other way. You are offering this person not just a view of your body, but a view of your soul. There is a spiritual aspect to this. There's an emotional aspect to this. There's an intellectual aspect to this. And you know them in a very intimate way that no one else does. You are as vulnerable as you can possibly be at that moment. And you are as open as you ever are with anyone. Back in the garden, you will remember that Adam and Eve, all of a sudden, after they sinned, what was the first thing they did? They covered themselves. That wasn't for God. That was from each other. They're the only two people on the planet. And all of a sudden, I've got to cover up. Why? Because now shame has entered into the person. Yet here, in the context of the marriage bed, we are naked and yet embraced in our nakedness and loved in our nakedness by the one person that we are to be completely safe with. You know, that's the challenge, really, of, of, of loving somebody, is of getting close without hurting them. And of, of being able to, or without being hurt, Right? 
Because we want to be as vulnerable as we can be and as exposed as we can be and yet accepted and loved at the same time. And we want to be able to get close and not have someone hurt us. And God designed this, this act, sex, to do that. To, to put us, in a sense, back in the garden of being naked and unashamed. Of being completely safe at the same time we're completely vulnerable. And, and we are disclosing parts of ourselves that no one else sees. Not just our body, but parts of our soul, too. And according to Proverbs 15, uh, 5, 15 to 20, that one of the great things about this is that it's not a fearful thing, it's a joyful thing. I want to show you that too. If you're a teenager, by the way, let me just uh, give you a word of encouragement. One of the best things you could do for your life would be to read yourself a chapter of Proverbs every day. You've got 31 chapters, get you through the whole book in a month. And one of the things it addresses several times is this issue of sex. And uh, because if you're a teenager especially, you have some questions and curiosity about it. You have some, some wondering, uh, what am I, where are the rules? Where are the guardrails on this? Uh, Proverbs will give you good instruction on that. Uh, chapter 5, verse 15 to 20. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your, strings, your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman or embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Now, if you've been to Israel or you're familiar at all with the Middle East, what's the climate there? It's hot, okay? It's desert. So what's the one thing you want when it's hot all of the time? Water, right? And the idea here is that you've got, you know, it's Solomon writing to one of his sons, and he said, now listen, boy, in marriage, what you have is your own private well with a fountain that's coming up out of the middle of it. And the idea is that you not divert that water just to have it just run down the street somewhere, to wherever it wants to go, but that you keep it just for you and your wife. And that, and that you not go running after wherever you might think there might be water, but that you enjoy the water that's already yours. And that you and your wife are regularly intoxicated and blessed. Now look at some of the Look at some of the adjectives that are used here. There's, there's at least five of them, but I, I underline these. Lovely, graceful, delight, intoxicated, blessed. 
In other words, we don't simply disclose ourselves in this. There's joy, and there's grace, and there's loveliness, and there's beauty, and there's blessing in being completely enraptured by your mate. You get a fresh taste of the garden once again. You know, we get our, our hiding replaced with being known, and our shame replaced with joy. There's one more thing that we need to know and live out, and this one is the most difficult for us, I think, to fully embrace, which is that sex is, believe it or not, not about you. Now, I want you to turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, and I know that even as I turn there, some of you know what that says, and you are inwardly right now wrestling with me on this, but rest assured, it doesn't say what you think. All right? <laughs> so, <laughs> listen to what God actually says to us. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, some of you are sitting out there right now, I know you, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, here's where the pastor lays it on thick about duty and responsibility. Yuck. And if that's what you're thinking, just relax. I'm not going to do that. Um, I want you to see this verse in context. Uh, in context, there's a couple of things that are going on. First of all, chapter 6, he's been addressing immorality of various types and kinds. And the Corinthian church has come out of a group of people who are all pagans, and one of the aspects of pagan worship which they were deeply enmeshed in is all of the immorality of the, uh, of the pagan temples, which included about a thousand temple prostitutes, and all of this kind of stuff that's going on in their culture. And so in reaction to that, uh, they had written to Paul a question because some of them had said, well, now that I'm a Christian, I want nothing to do with any of that. And so, therefore, I'm just going to, we're just going to say that for, if you're a Christian, you need to be like the Shakers and just everybody be celibate. Is that okay, Paul? What do you think about that? And Paul then writes chapter 7, verse 1, in answer to that question, now concerning the things that you wrote about. In other words, is this good for people to be celibate? And Paul writes back, essentially, yes, it's good. It's good. It's a good state. Being married is a good state. Being unmarried and celibate is a good state. Married celibacy is not a good state. That's not a good state. Uh, not a good thing within marriage. And in fact, he says, one of the reasons that God created marriage is as protection from sexual sin, and therefore the regular use of the marriage bed is also a good thing, even something that the other, each, each of the spouses has a right to, if you read verse 3 and 4 carefully. 
And right there is often where many marriage books and a whole lot of marriages hit a snag. Because very often, you don't have to raise your hand, but very often there is one spouse who has a slightly higher or maybe much higher uh, drive and desire and another spouse that has a much lower or slightly lower. And and statistically speaking, uh, men are the high drive partner about 75% of the time uh, and women about 25% of the time. Um, It just depends in your marriage and maybe even on the stage of life that you're in. In some cases, the wife is very interested and the husband not so much. In some cases, uh, it's the reverse. But the issue is, what is your marriage like? And a lot of times, people, particularly, this is a problem generally for the higher drive spouse. He reads a verse like this, and he says, or she says to their spouse, See, the Bible says you have to. Right? Which, as we all know, when you do that, immediately causes the person to experience waves of arousal and an irresistible urge to take you down the hallway to your bedroom, right? That's always what happens. The Bible says, so you have to, right? Um, They think to themselves, well, I repent. I'm sorry. I'm overwhelmed with with desire for you right now. Let's go, right? They don't think that. What, you, what, in, what happens in reality is this, is that now you've taken an area of blessing and of freedom and of enjoyment, and now you've added a big ladle full of guilt on top of all of that. And told them, essentially, you're inadequate, you don't meet my needs, you must not love me, all this other kind of complicated stuff, and it makes something that should be free and enjoyable very, very painful and difficult. And so let me encourage you uh, with some things I've come to understand about this text. Number one, you have to be loving, not just literate. You have to be loving, not just literate. And in fact, I think what Paul is saying is that contrary to Corinthians' idea that married sex is somehow unspiritual, here is precisely the place where the gospel comes into play in a big way. See, in in chapter 6, he's told us, you are not your own, you belong to Christ. In other words, you are not free to give your body to just anybody, Corinthians, and stop going to the brothels, Corinthians, because you already belong to somebody. Your body is not yours, it's Jesus' body. And in the same way, and in other words, he's saying, look, uh, Your body is not, does not belong to you. It belongs to Christ who died for you. And then he's saying, chapter 7, and here's how that works out within the context of a marriage. That your body doesn't belong to you within that context either. It belongs to your spouse. And you, you, it's, it's not that when he says... You no longer have authority over your body, but your spouse does. That does not now mean that you have the right to demand something 
uh, from your spouse, but pretty much the opposite. It means that once you get married, you give up your rights, even your rights to your own body, and you therefore offer yourself to your mate as a gift and not a duty. By the way, I just want to say this, okay? Um, Dutiful sex is a contradiction in terms, very much like dutiful roses, right? Uh, If I brought home a dozen roses to Karen, she likes that, uh, not as much as she would like it if I, like, did the laundry, but she, she likes it when I bring home flowers, okay? But if I brought home flowers and she's like, oh, you brought me flowers, and I just came back with, uh, don't worry about it, honey, it's my duty, okay? What would that do to her? It would not communicate love, I'll assure you of that. What it would communicate is, you don't arouse within me the kinds of feelings of, of passion and romance that would merit me bringing you flowers, so I'm just doing this mechanically because I think I should. Is that what is that, what that that's about? And by the way, sex works identically the same way. can't be done out of duty has to be done out of love out of genuine care and concern for the other person when we recognize that our bodies are no longer ours alone that they are his or hers to enjoy then what we do is we serve and we bless the other person because we're not focused so much on what I want but on what they want So, if you understand that you no longer have authority over your own body, but belong to your mate because of your, your covenant love relationship with them, then if you're the, the lower drive spouse, then you seek to love your mate by making an effort to please your mate. And if you're the higher drive spouse, you show love to your spouse by refusing to demand the complete fulfillment of your desires. And if both people within a marriage play, this works beautifully. You meet in the middle, and what you do is you find love like Christ in the process of laying down your desires, whether higher or lower, to authentically love this person because that's the challenge I think isn't it to actually love this person that we actually married and not some other person that we have kind of in our mind well if only I had married so and so well then he would understand that I'm just not as into this as you are well if only I married her I, I then then I'm sure we would swing from the chandelier you know every day right uh, but here's the reality. You didn't marry whoever that is in your mind. You married this person. And God calls you to love this person by laying down your life and your desires and your wants for their benefit and blessing. Not for your own and not for the meeting of your selfishness. 
but to actually love them because God has put you with them. Amen? And when you do that, by the way, you live out the gospel. You live out the gospel of laying down your life in order to serve and bless and benefit someone else. You love them like Jesus. And that applies not just in your kitchen or in your living room or in your car or in your yard, but in your bedroom too. It's not about you. It's about loving them like Jesus. Amen? All right, now, so bottom line, sex is God's good gift to be enjoyed and bring blessing within your marriage. Now, that brings us to some application. Um, If you're single, I don't doubt that this has been a tough message to hear. Uh, It's like talking about the glories of a steak dinner that you are not going to be eating. (laughs) Right? But let me just assure you that there is blessing to be had in obeying God here, too. All of us, all of us, married or single, have sacrifices to make when it comes to sex and to holiness before God. And by the way, if you want a good example of this, look at Jesus, who is completely holy, who, who completely sacrifices his sexual desires, and he had them, in order to live life to a higher calling and to be obedient to God in every aspect. You live out the gospel, too, as a single person, by laying aside something you may deeply desire, but choosing to live for something better than the satisfaction of it, which is the pleasure and honor of God. Now, if you're married, here's a question for you. What's your attitude toward sex? Do you see this as a good gift? That's right, the Christmas season, you know, one of my favorite Christmas movies, and by the way, I'm, uh, is a Christmas story. I bought my son a Red Ryder BB gun, right? Had to. It was on principle. I had to do this, right? I still want one for myself, but, um, <laughs> but, but Nathan has one, <laughs> right? But you remember in that movie, there's a scene where... Ralphie gets a a gift from his aunt, and he says, you know, my aunt sent me every year a gift, and she had been laboring for years under the delusion that I was not only perpetually seven years old, but also a girl, (laughs) right? And so he comes down the stairs in this pink bunny costume, right? And, you're, and his mom thinks it's cute and wonderful. And his dad is like, do you like wearing that? And he's like, go take that off. And he's like, up the stairs before you can say no, right? Uh, and a lot of people, I think, and I don't know if it's their church background or what they were taught growing up or a bad experience or what, but they, they, they think about sex within their marriage as kind of like that kink, pink buddy costume, you know? Might be a nice gift, but not for me. But here's the reality. Here's what the Bible says. That it's a good gift. 
and something to be enjoyed. And if you're having problems with this area of your life, then changing your attitude toward it to see it as God sees it is often the beginning of a solution. It's not a complete solution, but it's the beginning of one. Uh, If you're married, let me ask you another question. Is your marriage bed a place of blessing for you and your mate? Or is it a place of frustration and pain and hurt? If this is a place of blessing, then hey, carry on, enjoy, rejoice, uh, shout hallelujah, all right? But if not, answer yourself this question. What do you need to change about your attitude and response to your mate in order to make it one? What do you need to change about your attitude and your response to your mate? Make it one. Because here's the reality. You know how many people you can change? One. The person that you look at in the mirror every day. You cannot change them. You cannot manipulate them into doing what you want. You can change you. So what do you need to change about you in order to make this thing of, uh, something of blessing? Uh, if you're married, is your marriage bed a place of safe self-disclosure, and those two things go together. Safe self-disclosure. I've been around enough uh, to know, done enough counseling to know that that's not always the case, even in Christian marriages. Sometimes, uh, well, in fact, always, we are broken people, and one of the ways our brokenness works itself out is that is sometimes it can show up in this area of your life. You know, maybe a history of abuse, maybe, maybe some other problems that you have, and it comes out here because this is where you're vulnerable most. If, if this is not a, a, an area of safe self-disclosure for you, get counsel, get help. Come see me. Go make an appointment at the Antioch Group. Uh, Find a counselor that uh, is operating from a biblical framework and will walk you through this. Because this is important. That you find healing so that this can be a place of safe self-disclosure for you in your marriage. It's too important not to take any action on Last thing, uh, let me suggest some resources for you if you're married. I don't usually do this, but there are good books on this. A lot of good books, actually. Uh, if you're a man, this is a, this is a man-sized reading assignment right here. <laughs> okay. Men don't read marriage books. <laughs> All right. Women read marriage books and tell their husbands to read them. <laughs> All right. And we don't. But this one is one you might read, <laughs> all right? Um, the chapters are, are short. Uh, there's only 135 pages. Part of those are notes, all right? Um, and the print is big. So you can get through this if you, even if you're a slow reader in a couple evenings before bed. But this book, uh, Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God by C.J. Mahaney, is basically kind of an extended discussion on... If you're a man, a lot of us kind of have um, have trouble with the direction our sexuality takes sometimes. 
And this is a this is a way of pointing us toward the fact that you're meant to glorify God in the midst of your marriage and with your sexuality. And this is a good book for that. Okay, uh, if you're a woman, uh, I recommend this one. Uh, Karen used to do uh, little premarital discussions with young married women, and she would give them this book. And uh, it's called Intimate Issues, but it's good for women at any stage of married life. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're not yet married, this will head off a lot of stuff. Uh, if you already are married, this will help you. <laughs> okay, 21 Questions Christian Women Ask About Sex, written by Linda Dillo and Lorraine Pintus. All right? And, um, and there's just a whole ton of good information that's here that's biblical, that's sound, uh, medically even uh, sound, and it's just good, good stuff, okay? Um, if you are just having trouble in your marriage, and by the way, sex a lot of times functions like a barometer in your marriage. Uh, it can tell you whether things are going well or not in other areas by what is happening here, right? And, if you, and a lot of times... Um, if you're struggling there, that's the area that everybody like, well, I want to find out how to fix that. Well, very often it's a function of everything else that's happening or not happening in the rest of your marriage. So I've got a couple of other ideas here for you on that. One is called When Sinners Say I Do, because that's what happens when two people get married, two sinners get married, right? So When Sinners Say I Do, Discovering the Power of the Gospel for Marriage. It's a great book. And also, what did you expect? <laughs> By Paul David Tripp, okay? Uh, a lot of times people come into marriage and they have all kinds of expectations, right? They have all kinds of ideas and, and, and fantasies about what it's going to be like, you know? And chief among them is this one, and they all live happily ever after, Right? And um, it's more like this. When you get married, you have to figure out how to be happy, happy even after <laughs> you get married, right? Um, and because everybody's happy before they get married. If they weren't happy before they got married, they wouldn't have got married, right? But the reality is, is you got to figure out how to live together with this person even after you're married. And to do so happily is not always easy. And so what did you expect is a good one on addressing some of the gap between our expectations and reality and how to live within reality in an enjoyable, fun, blessed way. So um, if, you, uh, if you want to pick one of those up, I, these are actually church copies. So if you want to borrow one, you can, but you have to bring it back, <laughs> all right? So uh, otherwise, Amazon, about 10 bucks each on, these, on each of these uh, will, uh, will be worth the investment. So let me pray for us, and, uh, and we'll conclude. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word does not leave us wondering about areas of our life that we are often confused and in pain about, but that your word speaks specifically to the areas of sensitivity and difficulty and vulnerability that we have. 
and points us always in the direction of your glory and our joy. And it's hard for us to understand sometimes that your glory and our joy are wrapped into even this, the most intimate area of our life. And yet, Father, that is true, uh, that you desire that we would glorify you with our bodies and with our spouses, and that we would have great joy in our relationship with you and with them. And so, Father, I pray that would be the reality, and that our joy and your glory would intersect here, and that our marriages would be blessed as a result. And, Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.